turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Proverbs. We continue through this wonderful book whereby Solomon and others are endeavoring to walk those who would seek to honor the Lord in the way of wisdom. What wisdom is, is the ability to see and to avoid that road of wickedness, of unrighteousness, but rather to walk in a way that brings glory and honor to God. Um, if you read the introduction, a Siri uh, capitalized the word earnest. Did y'all notice that? Those of you who may have read it. Um, that earnest plea, in fact, she messed up two words, is... Uh, very poignant here, because the father and mother turn uh, their attention to a sensitive yet essential topic that has been relevant since the fall. How a young man might shipwreck his life through immorality in relationships. Um, I'm going to read verses 20 through 35 of Proverbs chapter 6. Sometimes the scripture takes us into delicate waters. That's one of these sections tonight. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased though you give many gifts. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, our desire is that we might glean something glorious, helpful, instructive, and so sanctifying from your word. May we be like the ideal son, those who ought to receive the word of our parents with humility and a longing to obey. And so, Lord, may we be soft to the teachings of wisdom, may we walk in wisdom, and so avoid the consequence of wickedness. 
May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness that all might be added to us, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, This evening we come to uh, more as it relates to the sin of adultery and infidelity. Uh, Previous to this, the son has been encouraged to not walk, sit, or stand, to not give himself or indebt himself to fools, to bad men, or as I said last week, three kinds of bums. It's even stronger than that. In fact, the end of the section I covered last week, the Lord hates seven things. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wickedness, feet that run quickly to evil, a false witness who tells lies, and one who sows discord. There are people whom we are surrounded by who delight in wickedness. Perhaps, parents, you may not remember your own childhood, but maybe you've encountered, even in the hearts of your own children, a kind of, of darkness and depravity. When you see your children being cruel to one another, and the real reason isn't, I just don't know why little Timmy is so wicked. Here's the answer. He likes it. He takes pleasure in pulling his sister's hair. It gives him pleasure to be cruel. And that's really where the sort of sorrow in the heart of a parent comes from. And so do we do. We plead with him. Sometimes we act confused. Don't be confused. (laughs) We plead with him because we know the fount of that wickedness. We know the longing of every human heart, even the heart that has been redeemed, that is no longer totally depraved, still has at times a longing to do that which is contrary to the word of God. Now, in order to help preserve the soul of their son, his reputation, the state and welfare of his household, the good even of his own body, They say time and time again, here are certain options that are open to you in life. One of the options presented to us tonight, or the option that is presented to us tonight, is the option of going with the gal that should not be asking you to go with her because she's already devoted to another one. The offer of a temptress towards adultery. And what it means for that man when he gives himself to that temptation and the chaos and the ruin and the destruction that ensues. Three points that I want to make tonight. The sin of being a tempter or temptress here specifically. The sin of being a temptress and secondly, uh, the responsibility or inevitability of ruin. And then thirdly, the application of a husband's jealousy. Let's look at the first point. The sin of being a temptress. Here in verses 20, really through 24, the father, on behalf of himself and his wife, the mother, are committing themselves and reestablishing why it is the son should be listening to them. We find an earnest plea To avoid temptation. That plea, though, is built upon some conditions 
or some calls. Verse 20, my son, keep, keep. Wednesday night, I talked about that. Children, you are called to keep. What does that mean? It means, do you remember? Uh-huh. Remember. Do you remember? You are to remember your father's command. Do not forsake the law of your mother. You are to remember it and hold fast to it. And then verse 21, the son is encouraged to bind the commands, the laws of his parents upon his heart, to tie them around his neck. He is to push them into that place where his will is conformed and informed. If he wishes to be wise, he must take the law of God, the commands of Yahweh, that are disseminated, distilled, given to him by his parents, and he must make them his own. He must wear them. And then verse 22, the father personifies these commands as having actions. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will protect you. When you awake, they will converse with you. The commands of God, the laws of the mother, is the living and active word of God. Have you ever had such a dialogue? either with yourself or with the content of the thing you know to be right. Well, I don't know. Should I do that? What do you think? And you, in sense, address the scriptures as though they are speaking to you as a teacher. I found myself doing this, walking about, even in a store, and I wonder, am I talking out loud? Has all of this been internal? I hope I'm not scaring people in the grocery aisle. This is how you are to engage with wisdom, the instructions of God. You are to interact with it. In fact, the more you study it, the more you keep it, the more you impress it upon your heart, you will find that you dialogue with Scripture as to how you should live. This often takes the form of prayer. Lord, what shall I do? Show me the way that I should go. And God, by his spirit, helps you call to mind the word that he has given to the church in every age to instruct you as to how you are to live. And so here in verse 23, the father then speaks of righteous, I'm sorry, the commands and the law as a lamp and a light. Now, it is a light and it is a lamp because it is pure, it is clean, it radiates with truth. But a light is more than something that just shines. There is a practical purpose to it. It shows you how to go, the way to walk. It guides your steps. The law of God is necessary so that we might walk in righteousness. And how to walk? Well, practically speaking... To keep you away from the adulterous woman, the evil woman, the woman with the flattering tongue, the seductress. This earnest plea to avoid temptation is possible when you are taking the content of the word of God and the law of God and you are committing it to memory and then you are praying that God would make it your treasure. 
that it would be your guide, that you would love it, that you would not seek to disobey it, that you would be guided and guarded by it. We call it the fortifying of one's heart. You should be praying at all times, Lord, help me not only to know your word, but to love the keeping of your word. Parents, you should be praying this with your children, that they would not just know the word, but that they would love to keep the word. So that by the time you've come to them, endeavoring to prompt them to repentance, they are already broken for their sins because they know the penalty and the wage of those things. And this takes time. But wisdom is yeoman's work. It takes time. It takes attention. It takes work. You must learn the plays. You must run the offense. You must know what works and what does not. Otherwise, what happens? You will find yourself weak to the temptations of the one the father and mother warned the son against. Here, stay away from the evil woman. Now here, this woman is married. We see that in verse 29 the one who is his neighbor's wife, and what she is doing is she's not acting very faithful to her husband. She sees the son, and she begins to seduce him. And what is she seeking out of this? She's not necessarily seeking payment, though she is called a harlot. She is seeking the same thing the son would be seeking if he were to engage her. The satisfaction of the flesh, that is her payment. It brings her pleasure to do that which is evil. And so the father and the mother are warning the son, there may come an occasion in your life where there is a woman among you who will seek to entice you into an inappropriate relationship. And this is purposeful. She has committed herself to it. She has a plan. She is beautiful, but she is a harlot, which is... I guess a more polite way of saying she's a prostitute. She's acting as a prostitute. She is trading something that she should not be giving up for something else. And if you, seeing the way that she entices you, endeavor to enter into an inappropriate relationship with, you, with her, it will not leave you full and satisfied it has here a kind of dehydrating effect. It saps you of water. Now, earlier in chapter 6, <clears throat> chapter 5, sorry, this father and uh, the mother warn the son against the same kind of sin. Don't go looking for water outside the house. Don't go looking for love in all the wrong places. Because what will happen is you will not be filled, you will be emptied. You will become a hollow husk of a man. She will suck everything out of you and you will become, as the Father says, a dry crust of bread. And we're not talking about French bread, you know, that's purposely crusty, but it's chewy and gluteny and delicious on the inside. We're talking about the kind of bread that if you throw it at the sheetrock, it'll put a, wall, a hole in it. That's not good for anything. It has no life. It has no strength. There is nothing left. You are reduced. You are not empowered. 
you are reduced. Why? Because she is preying upon your precious life. This is what the sin of a temptress is. It is the sin of seeking to steal life. But it is not just the temptress who is sinning. Right? When it comes to the sin of adultery, there are always two involved. There is the sin of the temptress, and there is the sin of the one who gives in to temptation. And one does not demand the other. It would be wrong for the son to say, well, I was being tempted. Because here, the father and the mother warn him, don't sin in this fashion. Because the effect is ruin. And so that brings me to my second point, the effect or responsibility of ruin. The consequence of adultery is found in verses 26 and following. He is, not called to, he is called not to lust. He is called not to engage with her because he will be sapped of life and strength. And here is why. Verses 27 through 29. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Now, where was the son called to take righteousness, goodness, law, commands? Here. And when he takes the righteousness, the law, the commands of God, and he places them within his heart, what happens to his life? What happens to his heart? It is strengthened. It becomes fresh. His life is like a well springing out of which are living waters. But what happens if he takes lust and puts it where it is not to go? It lights him on fire. It consumes him. It destroys him. And he's thinking the whole time, I'm fireproof. No, you are not. Perhaps he's thinking just a little bit of this. It's not a problem. I can handle it. It's just one night. I won't get emotionally involved. All the excuses. And yet the father reminds the son, you cannot take fire into your heart and not be consumed and destroyed by it. You can't walk on hot coals and not be seared by it. In the same way, you cannot go into your neighbor's wife and be innocent. It's impossible. Adultery is a sin that destroys one's own body. You can't take fire in and not get burned. You can't walk on hot coals and not be seared. You cannot go into your neighbor's wife and be innocent of guilt or, or and, willingly and knowingly hope to prevent destruction or to skirt destruction. It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Well, it doesn't matter if someone even finds out, does it? Because God is judge of all the earth. He sees all. But more often than not, it is found out. It's actually interesting here how the sins here mirror the sins in the garden. The wife took point and was led astray. 
And then her husband, Adam, instead of being active in preventing that sin of his wife, went along with it. Both were culpable, but in very different ways. Here, it is no excuse for the man to say, well, did you see what she was wearing? I mean, come on. That is no excuse. In the same way, the woman is told what? Don't allure. Do not be a temptress. Do not seek the approval of another man other than your husband. And this applies to women who were single prior to having husbands. What would your future husband think if you can think in that way? What would he think? Because your life is not your own. You belong to Christ. What would he think? Who is actually, covenantally speaking, spiritually speaking, your husband. So whether it is purity away or against temptation, that is to be the temptress, or a prevention from running to ruin headlong into self-destruction, the father and the mother say, this is bad stuff. This is a bad exchange. There is nothing good that will come from this. For both have sinned, but in different ways. And it is not right for one to blame the other. In fact, there are actually great social repercussions. And this leads me to my third point. The application of a husband's jealousy. It is understandable to take something if you need it. Now... That does not mean it is excused by God in terms of his righteous commandments. But let's look at verse 30. People, people, do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Now, the father and the mother are not appealing to the law of God here. They are appealing to the court of public opinion. And what they are saying is this. There is a kind of injustice that has within it a nugget of common sense. And this is what it is. If there is someone who is starving, it is more understandable if he takes something to feed himself instead of dying. Now, within the law of God, there are many provisions as to how to not only prevent poverty, but starvation. One of the things that we are called to do is to, within the realm of our vocation, provide a percentage of that vocation that is set aside for the poor. Let's say you're in agriculture. The edges of the field where you harvest the grain are to be left unharvested so that the poor may come and pick the grain and not die of starvation. Boaz is a wonderful example of this in the Old Testament. His righteousness is displayed by the fact that he is a lawkeeper. Ruth's righteousness is displayed by the fact that she goes and serves her mother-in-law even after her husband is dead. I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. Even godless people, people here in verse 30, understand that someone may take something if their life depends upon it. Verse 31, 
There is no provision in the Old Testament law to restore something sevenfold when it's stolen. Here, we're talking about injustice as it relates to penalty. When you commit this kind of sin, not only do you throw yourself at the feet of God as judge, but you throw yourself at the mercy even of godless people who do not understand justice. But they understand what? Well, what does Lewis say in Mere Christianity? Have you read it? It's a wonderful little treatise on apologetics. And this is what he says about men bearing the image of God no matter where you go. One of the statements he makes, this evidence that we are made in God's image that the law of God has written on our hearts is, we may not all agree on how many wives a man should have, but we can all agree that that's my wife. Now, both of those things need the refinement of the word of God. Lewis is not saying polygamy is biblically authorized. What he is saying is what? That proof of personal property, personal ownership, that that person, that thing is mine, is universal. And that reflects something of God's image in us. When you take something you don't need that belongs to someone else, not only have you violated God's law, which we find in verses 16 through 29, but you violate, or 20 through 29, sorry, you violate even the godless approach to God's law. You put yourself at the hands even of wicked men. Think Weinstein, right? A man who took many wives and committed a lot of adultery and even pagan Hollywood types agreed, this guy's a scumbag. And he is. And he brought ruin upon himself because he did not heed the wisdom to avoid temptation in this regard. It is acceptable in no societies. And what will end up happening is this statement sevenfold is you will never stop paying restitution for this kind of sin. It will go with you for the rest of your life. Now, the mother and the father, what we say here is they're spitting fire. They're telling the truth. They are telling the son, listen, the world in which you live, even a world that is broken by the fall, that does not love the law of God, you invite complete and total destruction upon yourself, not only by God, but by society. In a moment, we'll see, by the scorned and jilted husband. We'll get there in a moment. But what you might have to give up is everything you own. And you should know better. Don't do it. It will destroy you. There are some sins that bankrupt you, your family, and your household. And you might even experience divine forgiveness. God is gracious. God is imminently, enormously gracious. 
But despite this, the catastrophic defect of your sin, you may never get to outrun in this life. It will go with you. It's not unlike the sin of gluttony. At some point, you may go to the doctor and he says, you've done irrevocable harm to your heart. Sorry. You've done it to yourself. The sin that the father is warning the son to avoid is, it is one that, that will destroy him. Would you be such a man who knows the dire consequences of your sin and still choose to play with that kind of fire? There is a warning here. In fact, David had it all, didn't he? He had it all. The rich man with the flock of sheep, as Nathan said. And yet he saw the poor man with his precious singular sheep, and he went and he took that sheep from that man and killed him. And David was outraged that such a thing could happen in the whole of his kingdom. And he said to Nathan, bring me the man that he may be put to death. And Nathan said, yeah, that's you. Nathan is the father here. After the fact. David knew better, not because he wrote or read Proverbs 6, it was written after, but he knew the principle. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Woven into the very fabric of the society of Israel by God's command. And what did it do to David's family? His son was slain while hanging by his hair from a tree. God said, you know what? My covenant with you will never fail, but you have brought unmitigated destruction upon your house for your sin. Bathsheba's own father allied himself against David in the rebellion. It brought utter discord. Wounds and dishonor, the father says, you will get. And your reproach will not be wiped away. By whom? Not by God necessarily. But sometimes we bear the weight and consequences of our sin for the whole of our lives. And so there is another kind of revenge. There is the revenge of the husband. For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. Um, Earlier in chapter 6, the father and the mother spoke of the debtor. Don't indebt yourself to someone. Don't loan someone money. The same is true here. Don't put yourself in such a position of debt where even a bribe, which is unrighteous, cannot abate the wrath of another. That's what the father and mother are talking about here, except no recompense. They're talking about a bribe outside of court. He's not going to take it. What's he going to do? He's going to take you to the bank. He is going to see that your life is ruined. You will make of your neighbor an enemy. How then should Christians live? In this way. Well, we just said it, right? The sixth commandment, fifth commandment, this, the second table of the law. 
What do these six commandments speak of? Don't commit adultery has to do with what? Don't go covet. Don't go seeking another man's wife. Don't lie with her. Instead, do what? Endeavor to uplift and protect what is his. Seek purity. Why? Because you cannot live at peace with men if you are taking things that belong to them. It will only bring chaos and destruction. Do we see these things happening around us right now? I mean, what is Hollywood if it is not trading one spouse for another every five to ten years, right? It's just all these walking marriages. And what do you get for it? Disgusting content that is filled with the wretchedness of their own hearts. There is nothing beautiful in it. It brings only what? Vengeance, fury, and no ability to bring reconciliation. So wisdom here, with this very particular example, is the way in which we exercise the blessing of our neighbor. Do you wish to bless your neighbor? Then promote peace by not coveting. By doing what is good. By not seeking to rob from his house, but what? To give instead. It does require self-denial. Just because a man has something you want, the temptation may be there. But give thanks for the things that God has given Give thanks first for the son that he has sent to save you from your sins. Ask God to remind you of his glorious gifts that he has given to you. And for goodness sake, do not destroy yourself through covetousness. Let's pray.